Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Inside Briefing. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, and wow, the Chancellor has just quit. Sajid Javid out, Rishi Sunak in. We're going to be talking about all that. Promotions, demotions, new ministers trooping into Downing Street, those who suddenly find themselves out, going out. We finally had the reshuffle. But we can still tell you a lot about what it all means for the way Boris Johnson wants to govern. Even more than that, the runes of what exactly he wants to do with his time in Downing Street are becoming much clearer, and which ministers and departments we should now pay attention to. We're going to talk about that and what awaits the men and women who've joined the government ranks. Some politicians are quite happy not to join the government ranks, as it happens, and they've said so. Sarah Wollaston rejected ministerial jobs and instead went on to chair both the Health and Liaison Select Committees. She spoke to us about her time in Parliament, and that's coming up too. Before then, I can't imagine better people than the ones we've got here right now to discuss all this. Kath Haddon oversees our work on ministers, the constitution and a whole lot more, including reshuffles. Kath, the IFG, published a whole load of stuff this week, interviews with former ministers, described as explosive by one paper, you reckon? Mm. Yeah, I I mean, there was some good material in there. We had uh, Jeremy Hunt, David Liddington. Uh, Jeremy Hunt's actually really interesting on reshuffle. He talks about when he turned round to Theresa May and said that he did not want to be moved as uh, Secretary of State for Health because the winter flu crisis was going on. So he described the moment and how difficult he found it and he thought he might be out of a job. But after some discussion outside the room, he uh, managed to keep the job. Uh, so it's kind of a poignant story for today's reshuffle. Poignant and completely relevant. Thank you. Joining us in the studio for the first time is Raphael Hogarth, one of the Institute's associates, a lecturer on public law, Times leader writer, also training to be a barrister. Hi, Raphael. Hello. I'm exhausted just reading out the list of things that you do. Do you actually get to sleep <laughs> at night? Um, every now and again, although not very much last night with everything that's been going on this week. Uh, there may not be another night's sleep then in it at the moment. But seriously, as the government seems exasperated with the judiciary and may want to go into battle with it, does this feel like uh, something you're going to be writing about? I think so. I mean, all, all governments complain sooner or later about the judiciary because they get frustrated with judges telling them they can't do things that they don't want to do. But I think ever since... Conservative Party put this review of its relationship with the judges uh, in its manifesto. A lot of constitutional lawyers have been watching very carefully to see what kind of reforms uh, the Ministry of Justice or other government departments bring forward. And we're going to come on to that in a moment. I'm also delighted to be joined in the studio by someone who's helped to run reshuffles and been reshuffled, Gavin Barwell, former MP, former minister, former chief of staff to Theresa May. Lots of formers there, Gavin, sorry. Um, <laughs> what, what are you doing now, besides speaking at the Institute recently? And thank you very much for that. Uh, it was a pleasure. Uh, so I obviously uh, have a seat in the House of Lords, and I'm on the board of Clarion, which is the biggest housing association in the country, and I have a sort of consultancy business for whom PwC are my biggest clients. So I'm spending quite a lot of time working with them. You're not idle. Your Twitter bio says you're a Tolkien nerd. Yes. Dare I ask favourite character? Uh, that's a good question. Faramir, I would say. Oh, oh gosh, there's a whole uh, weird podcast in that. <laughs> you do you feel government's full of golems and sirens? <laughs> no, uh, no. I think um, one of the interesting things about the government is uh, there's not sort of a loss of power for power's sake. I think they've got a real agenda that they're trying to pursue and what they want to do with that power. And that's probably one of the things we'll come and talk about in a second. Why Faramir? Uh, so I think for those of you, for those that have read the book, there's, it sets up a contrast between these two brothers, Boromir mm-hmm. and Faramir, and Faramir essentially um, would rather preserve 
what he thinks is right and is prepared to make sacrifices for that. He's a sort of, but it's the kind of o- over- overlooked second son. Much well, um, yeah. So I'm an older brother, so I've probably that's a counterintuitive choice for me to make. But um, and no. also, though, Faramir does like make it a long way through the books, whereas Boromir does in fact, not. He, li- he, li- he lives. <laughs> yes. yes. Although, yeah, His Boromir dies elder, elder, in the end. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I could take us on a long diversion, but I'm not going to about whether government feels like a battle between good and evil. But for another time, before we dive into the reshuffle in more detail, I want to ask my panel about one of the big name departures and what this means for a particularly contentious area. Geoffrey Cox has left the post of Attorney General. He resigned, wrote a letter saying so. His most senior law office in the land that he's left just 24 hours before he returned to the backbenches. He spoke at the IFG about the role of Attorney General and about the contradictions that arguably lie at its heart and also about what the government's much-mooted Constitution Commission might actually do. Here's a clip. In my own tenure, I've had possibly some of the most intense uh, months that any Attorney General has had in recent years. And indeed, on one occasion, one of my colleagues was heard to comment, doesn't Cox do politics? Well, um, the answer to that probably is no. The reality is the Attorney General must, I believe, Uh, ensure that he gives honest, candid and independent advice to the government. And that is what I have always endeavoured to do. It is not acceptable, I believe, for an Attorney General to massage or to improve his advice uh, for the purposes of party politics. And that is what makes this role so unique. Geoffrey Cox there. You can watch the full video on our website. Raphael, has Geoffrey Cox been a good Attorney General? Yeah, I think he's been quite an unusual Attorney General, actually, because he's been quite a big political figure and even a party political figure. If you think about some of his predecessors, like Dominic Grieve, uh, often the role of Attorney General is basically lawyer to the Cabinet, there to uh, provide legal advice but not necessarily get involved with day-to-day policy-making in Cabinet or with the sort of ups and downs uh, of who's in, who's out in Westminster. But but Geoffrey Cox absolutely has done. And I think, you know, on the one hand, you might say, you know, people might ask whether it's entirely appropriate for an Attorney General to do that, whether it might ever compromise the independence of their advice. But I think Cox's approach has been interesting because his view seems to have been that that kind of political involvement with the government would give his advice more purchase when it really came to the crunch and he was saying things that ministers didn't like. So, for example, I'm thinking of a speech he gave at the Conservative Party conference in 2018. It was described as a warm-up act for the Prime Minister, a big rousing speech about Brexit. Is that, is that the kind of thing you've got in your mind? Absolutely. That, that speech at Party conference. But, but I think also subtler things than that. Um, I mean, he had a, I think he had a drinks event in Westminster shortly after he got appointed. He uh, he said at the Institute this week that as far as he concerned, as far as he was concerned, it was perfectly appropriate for him to contribute to cabinet discussions about the government's direction of travel. That That's a, a different conception of the role um, from some other attorneys uh, and, and one that I think... It, to some extent, may have landed him uh, in hot water insofar as he may have generated a bit of an expectation among cabinet colleagues and among other politicians in Westminster that he was always going to be a so-called team player. He was always going to be onside politically. And one of them retorted, as he said, does Geoffrey do politics when he came out with his famous legal advice on the backstop that was so inconvenient for the government? Yes, that, that's exactly it. I mean, you know, Geoffrey Cox said at the Institute for Government this week that he, he doesn't do politics, but the fact is that to a 
pretty considerable ex- extent he has done politics. Mm. He has got involved. Uh, and I think that's meant that when he's given really difficult legal advice, like he did over Theresa May's renegotiation, or or probably as he did when the government was thinking about the impact of the Ben Act last year, which was all about trying to get it to extend Article 50 beyond October the 31st, when he had to give really difficult legal advice on those things, people might have been a bit surprised that the advice is was quite as difficult as it was. So I'm interested, you're, you're saying this, I don't like to hear what, what, what everyone else thinks, I mean, that, that this con, the, this contradiction, as he put it, in the uh, the heart of the role between being giving impartial legal advice and being a you know, member of the cabinet, well, he's, that does, doesn't, it doesn't cause, you know, um, destructive confusion. Well, he's, he's talked quite a bit about had he, he, you know, had he known his advice was going to be quite so public, he might have phrased it in a different way, that he had written it for his cabinet colleagues and, uh, you know, he's clearly very conscious that his advice was quite a big factor, so it seemed from the outside. Um, Gavin, you're spluttering uh, right side. Um, Quite a big factor. A big factor. Um, And I think that... um, I think that Raf said is absolutely right, that he, if you look what he said uh, on the Brexit deal, he said, look, my legal advice is that this there is no legal mechanism to get out of this arrangement and therefore it could be permanent. Mm. But the political context, to my legal advice, is I think that is highly unlikely for the following reasons. Um, so, you know, that there, I think his, his argument would be that there are occasions where you have to give a political context to the legal um, position. But certainly, you know, from, from our point, uh, my memory of that, that occasion... The frustration was his performance in the House when mm. he went and gave a statement about the advice, um, you know, was a highly persuasive one. But by that point, people had read what he'd written down in the letter. Uh, and, you know, if, if, it, if, it had, if people had just formed their judgment, I think, based on his statement to the House, he might have got a so slightly do you, different Do you think it makes for confusion, the kind of which side are you on? I think there is an inevitable tension in the role. If you're if you're going to have someone who is the le- the senior legal advice to the government, but they're also a member of the cabinet, and therefore they are sometimes going to be... Uh, having to give political context to their legal decisions, that there is inevitable tension. And he has had to grapple with that in probably more politically difficult circumstances than many Attorney Generals. And in fact, a fun fact on the Attorney General is that, you know, though you say he's a member of the Cabinet, and though he often says (laughs) that he's a member of the Cabinet, the Attorney General is not a member of the Cabinet. The Attorney General is a minister with rights to attend Cabinet. And actually, it's only been a kind of convention that the AG always attends Cabinet, basically since the Iraq war. For most of the 20th century, the AG attended cabinet when he needed to. And so Mm. there there is this kind of trend over time of that role growing in political stature. And and I think that there's a kind of important... The Iraq war was not a high point for that. We had, of course, Peter Goldsmith and the advice first in summary that that the Iraq war was not legal and then that it uh, was. Exactly. And, and, you know, I, I think what people acknowledged after the Iraq war saga... Um, was that sometimes legal advice on extremely legally sensitive decisions is political uh, and is going to be subject to public scrutiny and lawyers do need to be involved in political conversation. I mean, the the key thing, though, about it is there's two different tensions going on. You've got the legal advice that the government needs to have to take a decision, the discussions around that. You've got, actually, you've probably got three different things going on. You've also got the government's legal position, how they're selling it to people. And in this case, what was so crucial was that it didn't give a lot of Brexiteers, particularly much room to manoeuvre on the backstop, because this was so starkly saying that the backstop was a trap, that they, you know, couldn't really sort of draw back from their positions. But then you've got this third issue, which is the House of Commons wants to know what the legal position is of the thing that they're talking about. 
government asking mm. exactly about this. So, uh, you know, the Commons said, give us the legal advice. Yeah. The government said no. Uh, Parliament eventually found the government in contempt. Um, does that matter? It, well, yes, it does. I mean, it was the first time in history that the government was found in contempt. And so? Did it have any consequences? Not really. I mean, the government was already massively damaged. Um, you know, it, 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 there was there's no teeth to it. Um, what they were able to do was actually force the legal advice to be published. That was quite a significant moment because, and you know, Cox is right about this. It can then affect how people write this advice, how they put forward it, if they think that it's going to be published. There's a good argument to be made about should the, the government have to make the case publicly be transparent about what its position is particularly on very thorny legal issues but there's a bigger issue about how the how parliament gets legal advice because they've got speakers council they've got the commons library but mostly they're dependent either on the government or their own sort of expertise but i do think it's worth saying that when parliament wants to see the government's legal advice mm. that isn't necessarily because parliament wants to know what the legal position is mm. right? i mean it's probably not because parliament wants to know the legal position there are plenty of lawyers who could tell Parliament legal position. What Parliament wants to know is what the government thinks the legal position is. I mean, you think back to the Iraq war, that is the important question, right? Does the government think that it's acting lawfully here or does the government consider itself to be acting unlawfully? And that tells you something not necessarily about the legal position, but it tells you something, A, about the government's attitude towards the rule of law and B, about whether the government is being straight with Parliament and the wider public uh, about the position. And, and it's, I think it's perfectly legitimate for Parliament to ask those questions. And, and when, if ever, do you think the advice should be public? I think it, it's always going to be, it's, it's difficult to anticipate every situation in which parliamentarians are going to demand to see legal advice. I think uh, I was looking before we, we sort of saw Geoffrey Cox this week at the occasions in history in which legal advice has come out from government. And it's basically over Brexit, over the Iraq war, over the Westland affair. Um, I, I think over the Scott, in, Scott inquiry and then over the, the factor tame case, which was all about the supremacy of EU law uh, over domestic law. So, but basically occasions when there are sort of massive public interest questions um, that that attach to the legal position. But I, I basically think you have to judge it case by case and sometimes there is going to be a public interest there. There's two different issues here. There, there's the question that you said, which is Parliament is interested in what the government believes the legal mm. position is. And there is the ability of the attorney to give private advice to the cabinet. And my frustration, I had a lot of sympathy with the former point, that Parliament was entitled to know what the government thought the legal position was. Mm. And actually, if you remember what happened in that sequence of events, the government published something which was a statement of its view of the legal position. Mm. Parliament then insisted on seeing the actual advice and discovered that there wasn't anything additional in that. Um, but the danger, if you set that precedent, is it is going to limit what attorneys feel they can write in that private advice to the but government. But this was also is, another, you know, case of a minority government, obviously. Yeah, so with a majority it's not going to happen in phase not, two, yeah, because well. if Parliament tries to do it, there won't be a majority in Parliament. If some people in Parliament try to have it happen in phase two, there won't be a yeah, majority no. in Parliament to make it happen. Well, Geoffrey Cox has gone for the moment, even if he re-emerges. And so let's turn to the rest of the reshuffle. Also leaving the government ranks, we have had the Chancellor, Sajid Javid, and Julian Smith as Northern Ireland Secretary, Andrea Leadsom as Business Secretary, and Theresa Villiers as Environment Secretary. What should we make of all this? Well, some of these changes were, you know, strongly earmarked. I mean, Julian Smith, there was a lot of discussion, especially in the last week, about 
would he survive would he not um in other cases like let's we've been talking about her going or jeffrey cox going for some time so they're not massive surprises the big surprise that everyone's talking about is the chancellor obviously losing a chancellor looks like a very damaging thing but we know four that weeks before the budget four weeks before the budget but we know that there's been sort of long-running wranglings between uh chancellor sajid javid and the prime minister's advisor dominic cummings and all the newspapers at the moment are viewing it through that lens but you know what this means is that now you have the chief secretary to the treasury who's become the chancellor so they've not entirely Rishi, Rishi Sunak Rishi Sunak. one of the rising stars so they've not entirely Risen lost stars. any um sort of experience from the treasury and possibly got the person that they really wanted in place so not so accidental perhaps why has he quit well, it, it, I haven't spoken to him. So <laughs> the news came out before we came out. It appears to be the case that um, he was he was told that um, he needed to get rid of his team of advisors and have a joint team of advisors with Number Tim. Is that a terrible thing? A huge intrusion, or is it? Does it make sense? Well, so I think I would separate it into two bits. I actually think the idea of trying to have a joint political team between Number Ten and Number Eleven is a really interesting one. Yeah. I, mean, I think if you look over history, with the possible exception of the Cameron Osborne period our system of government does tend to throw up tension between number 10 and number 11 because number 10 is always pushing for what new things you can do and someone has to say, well, how are we going to pay for that? Um, and I you know, I worked very hard when I was doing the chief of staff job to try and get the relationship between Philip and Theresa into, into the right place and to try and integrate the political teams. But I think going further on that route is a good thing. Where I draw a distinction is you can't have, for the person who is you know, the number two person in government, to say to him, you've got to get rid of all your staff and replace them with mm. people we choose. I don't think anyone is going to accept that as the terms on which you take the job. And I think Saj is a really significant figure in the Conservative Party. I think he performed really well in the leadership election. I obviously had the privilege of working with him when I was housing minister. And I think he is a loss uh, to the government. And I'm sad to see that happen. So as, as I often find commenting on this government, there is, a, there is a kernel of a good idea here, mm. but it seems a shame that it's been pushed in this particular way and led to this outcome. Mm. It has perhaps a vindictive feel about it, or as you said, a sort of a, a provocation. What, what about the Julian Smith? Well, with Julian Smith, I mean, the, the, the sadness is really that he's actually been a, a successful Northern Ireland secretary, more successful than any others in the last three years. It's not certainly. an easy thing to be. And he's no. actually managed to get the Assembly back together. Absolutely. And we saw the reaction from Twitter straight after. A lot of people from a lot of different parts of, you know, both uh, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland offering, you know, their sympathies, thanking him for the work that he's done. So he's clearly in relatively short time uh, in the job, has built up a really a huge amount of goodwill. The times I've been over there recently, I've heard a lot of good things about him yeah so it's a loss and it you know again it's an institutional memory loss because uh, building up those relationships whoever comes in now has got to do all that hard work again you know the assembly has only been up and running for a very short period of time you've got big big challenges ahead on brexit so you know it's an uphill challenge for his successor i wonder if his crime was precisely being such a good northern ireland secretary of state insofar as one of the ways in which he built trust with Dublin uh, and with the stakeholders in Northern Ireland was by lobbying quite hard against No Deal mm. when the Prime Minister was talking last year about how you know No Deal was absolutely on the table and we had to get out by the end of October and it, it was, I thought it was quite striking that you know, when he left government this morning some of the warmest tributes to him uh, were from senior figures in the Irish government, mm. from, from the Irish Taoiseach um, so I, I, I think yeah, I, I agree, I think it's been really impressive what he's done at the Northern Ireland office. I think for Boris Johnson, that might have been, in a way, the problem. 
What about what it does for Brexit talks and generally what this re- reshuffle does for the next stage? I'm not sure if Julian's departure necessarily has an implication for the Brexit talks, but one of my biggest fears about the next phase that is to come is that actually the Northern Ireland issue is going to rear its head again mm. because there is a I'm separate sure stream right. of negotiations, which is how this protocol is actually going to be applied in detail. That's true. And it's already very clear that the government is claiming there aren't going to be any checks from GB to NI. Well, Boris Johnson is, and we've had other well, ministers other saying, well, saying right, the, slightly the, more nuanced The things. commission is absolutely clear that we have signed up to that. And I think any reading of the withdrawal agreement um, supports that conclusion. So my fear is a row in that joint committee is actually going to stop the the FTA negotiations really getting underway because the, there's no way they're going to proceed until we've settled that issue. Uh, yeah, that sure that has right. to be right. And what about um, the Michael Gove role? He seems to be sitting there, staying put with a beefed up cabinet office. Yeah, he's minister role. for the cabinet office, so it seems that he's staying put with carrying on with the Brexit role. He's in charge of civil service reform as well, so it's a big role. But this is what I'm interested in: is Theresa had you know two roles who were effectively a deputy who were doing a lot of uh, work for her, you know, Damien Green as First Secretary of State and you know, David Liddington then as Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. I mean, do you think Boris is going for a similar role or is he going for something that's a bit different? I think it's an even more beefed up role. Uh, I mean, Damien and David did a lot of the, in terms of delivery and implementation of policy, which I think if Michael is doing civil service reform, it, that will probably sit under him as well. But it sounds like he is also going to have a role coordinating um, some of the work on the negotiations. And if so, that's an even bigger role. I mean, I think he is a central figure in this uh, government. And we appear to have a minister for the union and a minister for HS2, apart from being obviously on the first train that runs ever. Well, there's actually, there's going to be years and years and years down the line. But what, what does this person actually do to get it done? You're looking at me. I yes, don't know I am. The answer yeah. but, I mean, so I think having given the project the go-ahead, the government has got to get better at managing some of these big infrastructure projects. One of my experiences when we're in number 10, we're obviously um, focusing mainly on other things, but I can remember on Crossrail, we were told in July that Crossrail was due to was on course to open on the 1st of January, and then in August we were told it was 18 months behind schedule. I mean, that is just not possible. Mm. Um, so getting a better grip on ensuring that these projects, when we've agreed them, run to budget and to time is clearly important. If having a minister responsible for that helps to that, fine. I think on the union... I really hope it is a substantial and serious role Mm. because as someone who is a passionate unionist, I think the UK government needs to give real thought to what it does to make the case more effectively for the union. And I think we have relied too much on a sort of purely economic case that says, well, you'll be better off staying in the United Kingdom. And I think we need to develop an emotional appeal um, to people. I think if you look at the, the Scottish independence referendum, it was almost a sort of head versus heart campaign. And if we want to keep our United Kingdom together in the future, we need an emotional appeal that binds the four nations of it together and recognises. I've always, I felt when I was in the job at number 10, that the UK government still hasn't really come to terms with the significance of the devolved governments that have been set up and our relationship with them and how we manage that. And if you think about Brexit and phase two, you know, some of the things we're negotiating on are devolved responsibilities of those governments. Gavin, what's it like in number 10 when a reshuffle actually starts happening? So before I go to what it's like in number 10, it's worth saying what it's like over the road in in the House of Parliament. I mean, I think to people listening, imagine if in your workplace you got into work and an announcement came over the Tannoy that today everyone is either going to get a phone call uh, or asking them to come and see the boss and they will either be promoted, uh, moved sideways, demoted or sacked. 
but if you don't get a phone call by the end of the day, it just means you carry on in your current job. And well, I've, work, I've worked in newspapers. That's exactly what yeah. happens. Like. It doesn't happen in many places, though, right? It's, it, it makes Westminster a very strange environment on these days. I mean, in number 10, you obviously start the day with a very clear plan of what you're trying to do. And quite often, and this today may well have been the case in point, I haven't been on the inside, but someone actually doesn't want to take the job that you're offering them and then you have to on your you know on your feet try and come up with a new plan essentially so they're not easy days um there is a big difference i think between you can always tell the people that are joining the government for the first time because they walk into the building knowing they're getting something yeah very uh, so for them, it's very the happiest pleased. day of their careers whereas everyone else comes in slightly nervous often about exactly what it is that they're going to be uh, they're going to be offered so they are they are difficult days and they can go wrong. You can run out of rooms to hold people in when you're trying to, when, when you get into a difficult situation, yeah. you've got several people in the building at the same time. So you think you're going to give a job to someone yeah. and then they're, they're, yeah, I mean, they're, they're not sure Famously, one of Theresa's reshuffles, um, we, we wanted to move um, both Jeremy Hunt uh, and Justine. Justine and Greening. Ju- yeah, from, Justine Greening. Yeah, education. Uh, and Jeremy had previously wanted, he'd signalled to the Prime Minister previously that he wanted to move, but then actually because of the winter crisis in the NHS, he changed his mind and said, I don't think I can move now. So that was difficult. And Justine who we'd offered you know, an equivalent job and allowed her to keep some of the particular responsibilities on social mobility she wanted, yeah. but she, she didn't want to leave DfE. So these days can be incredibly difficult. And I think I heard a story, was because it was Damien Hines was going to be the replacement at education, is that, was that right? Damien Hines did go to education. Yeah, yeah, but he spent quite a few hours sitting in one of those yes. rooms waiting to find out yeah. what was going to happen as a result of it. So some days they go very smoothly and people yep. are pleased with what you offer them. And on other occasions, you, you run into difficulties. And there's a. Does the I mean, Prime Minister worry about making enemies? Any Prime I don't minister? think. I don't. I don't. I mean, Theresa didn't enjoy doing them. I can't imagine any Prime Minister does. Mm. I mean, the reality is the longer you stay Prime Minister, the more pool of people you build up on the back benches mm. who you've either not rewarded when they, when they think they deserve bringing into government or you've removed from government. Yeah. Uh, and if you want fresh blood, um, you know, you have to be willing to, to wield the axe sometimes right, and remove so people, even sometimes when they've not necessarily done anything wrong, just you need a little bit of rotation. So if we think of these brand new ministers uh, all smiley walking out of Downing Street, they're going to find their new department, what advice can we give them about how to get off on the right foot? Do you want to, be, you want to start? No, You've I, spoken to so many ministers rather than my own individual experience. We have, and we've written reports about all of this. I mean, look, let's think about what the process is. First of all, they go in, they've given this massive briefing. Um, into their new department. Into their new department. They're meeting the permanent secretary. You know, it actually, it takes a long time for ministers to really get up to speed, especially if they've not worked in that particular department before. They've ten got hours, no background ten in months, it. three years. Some talk about six months. Ken Clark, who did actually probably more reshuffles than most people would talk about, it took him sort of six months to really feel like he was starting to sort of fire on all cylinders. Um, but you've got to make big decisions within a fair few weeks. You know, there, there's a recess next week, so Parliament's not sitting, but we've heard tales of people having to go to the House of Commons within hours of getting the job to go and face questions. Um, so it's a massively is steep the House of Commons curve. nice and kindly about that when they get there? The House of Lords is nicer, but the House of Commons will be a little bit understanding, yes. And it's they, pretty good. Yeah. I, had to do, I had to do questions on my first day in the job. And the important thing is not to bluff. Yeah. The important thing is if you don't know the answer, just say, I don't know the answer. I'll go away and find out and come back to you. And the House is fine with that. So I think one of the, my single piece of advice to a new minister would be, before you walk into the building, think about how you like to work. Mm. Because the civil service will have a modus operandi, well, often based on how the previous minister 
like to work. And I, I, for example, didn't particularly like reading through huge hundred pages packs of information. What I found much more useful was to have officials come into the room, give me a short presentation and allow mm. me to question them about it. That's how I learned the material quicker that way than just sitting wading through all this stuff. So you've got to think in your own mind, how is it that I want to get briefed up, first of all? What are my key priorities? Who are the stakeholders I need to meet first? And how do I like to take decisions? What's the, what's the, what, what level of information, what process do I want to come to a decision? And not everyone, th- I think, thinks about that before they go in. So they just end up inheriting the way the previous person did. Well, and also not all ministers are self-aware enough to realise that that's how they best work, how they best take on information, whether they're good readers, whether they're good listening at people, whether they find it very uncomfortable actually being in a room full of people where they're sort of telling them what they're, you know, what they need to know. Um, so there, there, is, there is a certain amount of self-awareness that really helps them. And most private offices know that they this is going to be an issue. So they have thought about it in advance, but the difficulty is getting the rest of the department to adjust to that, to just sending in a paragraph rather than eight pages of submissions, that kind of stuff. So just looking back quickly, is it a disaster for the government? Is it a reshuffle gone wrong that the Chancellor has walked out? It looks like it didn't go to plan, but maybe it did go to plan. I mean, obviously, there was a conversation between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor in that meeting, which the Prime Minister made an offer, tried to stamp down his authority over the Treasury, uh, and whether the Chancellor said yes or no, that authority has been stamped down. So I, I think they will have planned for this eventuality. If, you, if, you're, if I'm going to call you in so you can keep your job, but as long as you agree to get rid of the people that work for you, I'm going to know there's a reasonable chance you might say no to that. So I think they will have they will have known that there were two sort of possible ways out of this, either of which, from their point of view, they'd have been happy with. Mm. I think the, the big fallout is, is how this affects the backbenchers, uh, you know, how much sympathy there is for Sajid Javid, how this affects others in, in the Cabinet as well, because it's always true with any Prime Minister that there's a sort of battle of wills, battle of power, and, uh, you know, a cabinet now, you know, newly appointed, not expecting another reshuffle for some months, we hope, years, will feel more empowered. So whether or not it affects that longer down the line, that's the big one, issue. One final point I'd make is if you look at the last few years, you know, we've gone through this process, Cameron may change, all the people that left the May government, one side or other on Brexit, the May Johnson change, people standing down at the election, now this you have elevated right to the front line people that are fairly recently into parliament mm. so there isn't a lot there isn't a lot of talent there other than the people that have just got elected that are waiting to come into government um we've gone through this period in politics where people have been accelerated very quickly from coming into parliament right to the to the front line so quite exhilarating for them quite exhilarating for them but it has longer term implications you know, if this government is going to run you're looking at you certainly expect it to go the full length of this parliament and so these people are going to be there for that yeah, time. Yeah, and there's not plan, a lot of other people to come through in the pipeline. Yeah, well, we'll have to see next, next I guess, the budget, uh, second week of March, and how Rishi Sunak does then. Sarah Wollaston arrived in Parliament through David Cameron's long-forgotten open primary system for picking MPs. It was designed to encourage people from all walks of life to enter politics, and for Sarah Wollaston, a former GP, it worked. But the Conservative Party, in the end, didn't work for her. She made her name as chairman of the Health and Liaison Select Committees and as one of the most vocal opponents of the government's Brexit plans, something that put her in front of the television cameras all the time. She finally quit the party to join the short-lived Change UK and then stood and lost as a Liberal Democrat at the last election. She spoke to Hannah White. So you were chair of the Health Select Committee, which is now chaired by a recent former health secretary. 
And in many cases, this is going to create a quite an odd situation where Jeremy Hunt will be scrutinising policies that he put in place. Mm-hmm. Do you think this is a good or a bad development? I think there's good and bad aspects to it. It will work well if he's prepared to genuinely challenge the government and say sometimes inconvenient uh, truths, um, hold them to account. Uh, It won't work well if that doesn't happen. But of course, he does have a a huge amount of inside knowledge about how this all works. So if you like, he knows where the body's buried. And so there's good and bad in this. And so it depends how he takes on that role. And I think he will be prepared to to challenge government. And, And also, of course, there are many aspects that he pursued when he was the Secretary of State around patient safety. So it'll be interesting to see how he follows up on many of those issues which are very current at the moment. And of course he's just one of several uh, new select committee chairs that have been elected. How do you think the challenges that select committees will face in this parliament will be different to those in the last couple of parliaments? I think the big challenge is going to be the makeup of the select committees because they'll all have an inbuilt conservative majority which wasn't the case last time around so I think it's going to be really important for all the select committee chairs to show genuine independence and continue to uh, behave as if they didn't have that inbuilt majority and trying to build consensus because if they just bludgeon things through um, with their inbuilt majority uh, and and turn out to be producing reports which are helpful to government, then that will be very unhelpful for the public because what the public need is a select committee system that's holding government and powerful individuals to account. And as chair of the Liaison Committee, which was the other role you held, uh, towards the end of the last parliament, you produced a very big report with lots of recommendations about how to make the select committee system work better. What are your hopes for how those recommendations might uh, be implemented in this parliament? There's a whole range of recommendations, everything from how, very importantly, how um, the select committees interact with the public and stakeholders to make sure that they're relevant. Um, So I hope that those will be uncontroversial and go ahead. And likewise, um, making them more relevant to the parliamentary process. So, for example, having select committee chair question time, um, making them much more accountable to the House themselves. Again, I don't think that's controversial, um, but I think there are some aspects of this that I that worry me. Um, So, for example, the ability to call ministers and other members of the public. I think, personally, that the time has come to strengthen the power for select committees to call individuals who are not wanting to attend. And, of course, famously, um, the Prime Minister's chief advisor, um, Dominic Cummings, was the only individual to be found in contempt of Parliament last time around because of his repeated refusal to attend um, a a select committee. So I think that there'll be at the heart of government a reluctance to strengthen the powers of select committees. And I think that will be a, a wasted opportunity because I think that what we may see is increasingly a tendency for both ministers and outside individuals just to refuse to turn up. And, and that will really weaken their powers. And quite difficult for select committees to say this is unacceptable if there's someone at the centre of government who didn't think he should turn up either. Well, exactly. I mean, the, the Prime Minister on three occasions delayed and didn't attend. And I think if that continues in this parliament, why would other individuals turn up to select committee system if the Prime Minister doesn't do so? So I think we need to see real leadership at the top. And of course, for any government, 
they will get lazy and um, make mistakes if they don't hold themselves open to scrutiny. So it's in government's interest, ultimately, to have a, a clear and transparent system of accountability and scrutiny, but they must abide by that themselves. So what about wider scrutiny? Where do you see that going um, in this parliament now? I think it's really worrying because we're not only seeing um, the potential assault on the select committee system and undermining how that scrutinises government, um, but we're also seeing other signs. Uh, We recently saw, for example, journalists being separated in the foyer of Downing Street into those who were unhelpful and helpful to government and, and some journalists being denied access to briefings. I'm very glad that the whole lobby refused to be part of that and all walked out. But if that then creeps in... And, uh, and only journalists who are helpful to government can access briefings. I, I think we'll see an erosion of the ability of the press to hold government to account. But then also, uh, what happens to the judiciary? So this week we've seen um, the, uh, the, the sort of complaints about the judiciary um, intervening in the Jamaican deportations. And the government, I think, taking a rather populist line Will that then be a pretext for then going further even on undermining the um, the, the judicial review system? So I'm, I'm very concerned about that, that we could see this three-pronged attack, both within the, the, the judiciary, the media and parliamentary scrutiny. Just turning to Brexit, you were obviously at the forefront of the People's Vote campaign. You spoke out in Parliament Square about the issue. Looking back, do you think that that whole movement in some way may have got in the way of a soft Brexit compromise that might have been possible? Of course, with the power of hindsight, you think, well, would we have been better to have chosen something different? But but at the time, there genuinely was, um, I think, a great deal of interest in the possibility of giving people uh, a second second vote. So I I think it was a reasonable position to take. But of course, with hindsight, we've ended up with a harder Brexit than we might otherwise have, have, have had at the time. Sarah Wollaston speaking to Hannah White. Gavin, what was it the feeling in number 10 when your colleagues like Sarah Wollaston quit the party? I don't think we were surprised because it had been coming for some time, but disappointment. I mean, I think what, um, obviously what Theresa was trying to do was to deliver Brexit and hold the Conservative Party together. Um, And this was one of the early indications that that wasn't going to be possible. And subsequently, other people have been either chosen to go or have been pushed out of the party. She makes the point that Boris Johnson has yet to turn up to face the liaison committee. Is it a good look? I'm sure sure he will do that. I mean, obviously, it's been a slightly... (laughs) unconventional first few months that he's had in office but it's an important thing for prime ministers to do the last Um, time he was meant to be facing the liaison committee i think he prorogued parliament we've reached the end of another episode of inside briefing my thanks to kath to raf to gavin faramir barwell thank you for being with us today after months of uncertainty we think we now have a ministerial team that's here for the long haul but a week of course is a very long time in politics So what should we and they look out for next week, Kath? Well, for me, let's turn to the other side of the chamber and the very long-running Labour leadership contest. This week uh, is another 
key moments in that where they have to have got nominations from constituency Labour parties by Friday and then they move on to the next stage and next week you actually start to get the members being balloted and able to vote. But we've got another two months of this. We have. It's not until the 4th of April that this gets uh, announced. So they've got no one yet to talk to the reshuffle no, of the budget. So it's more hustings, more touring around the country, uh, yet more endless speculation and more polling about who's on top and who's not. Raf. I'm going to be very interested in the agenda of the new Attorney General, whoever they are. What do they want to do on appointment of judges? What do they want to do on uh, the law that stops the government from doing what it wants to do? And what's going to happen to this wider constitutional reform agenda as the government mulls what to include in this much vaunted Constitution and Rights Commission? Gavin. Um, I think the sort of special EU council that will adopt their mandate and it will be interesting to see do they stick with the draft mandate the commission published or do the member states on fishing or the European Parliament in terms of what they said the other day will that push for that mandate to be tightened up even further because there's already quite a big gap between the two sides and it could get wider. Very good point. And the EU talks haven't really started and people have almost stopped talking about Brexit. But as you point out, we're going to have to start. Thanks, everyone. Do subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts and you can stream us on Spotify too. And please leave us a review while you're at it. Parliament's in recess next week, but the IFG is not. So keep an eye on our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk for everything we're up to and tune in on Friday when Inside Briefing returns. See you then. <laughs>